Listener Production. In this episode of The Briefing, the story of a teenage vapor. I ended up throwing up the very first time I vaped, and my throw up tasted like the vape flavor. That's Joy, who started vaping at 17 years old and was so addicted she kept vaping even though it was making her vomit. I knew when to stop vaping and like give it a rest for a minute because I knew after that certain amount I would like get nauseous. You'll hear how she got hooked in the first place and then how she managed to get off the vapes. It comes as a new survey of 14 to 25 year olds shows that half of them have vaped. That is our briefing. First, here are today's big headlines. Hey guys, it's Katrina Flowers here. It is Monday, the 20th of November. Well, we're kicking off with some conflicting reports about a potential ceasefire in Gaza. According to the Washington Post, a deal has been brokered for a five-day pause to conflict in exchange for Israeli hostages. They're citing that they've seen some documents that say that as part of this arrangement, there'll be batches of hostages, mostly women and children initially, released every 24 hours. But the White House has since hit back saying they haven't reached a deal yet, but we continue to work hard to get a deal. Over the weekend, Tom, tens of thousands of people in major cities rallied. They're they're calling for a ceasefire in Gaza, and that includes Julian Assange's dad, who spoke at an event in Melbourne. Yeah, if they could get this deal up, I think this would be welcome from all sides. If we can see some of those hostages released, that would be incredible for those people and their families. And a pause in the hostilities and the destruction and the death in Gaza would also be very welcome. So I think the world is watching this very closely. And big sporting news. Uh, Australia has won the Cricket World Cup, beating favourites India. He'll come back for two. And Australia win the World Cup for the sixth time. And in front of 120,000 people, they've upstaged the home team in magnificent fashion. Yeah, so India went undefeated through the tournament. Um, We actually lost to India towards the beginning and South Africa, and then we beat South Africa in the semi and then overnight India in the final. So how the game went down was India went into bat first and we bowled them out for 240 which these days is a very low total in one-day cricket. Um, Then we came into bat. We lost three wickets early, but Travis Head was the hero. He took charge uh, with an innings of 137 runs, so pretty incredible. And it caps off an epic run for the Aussie cricket team. They won the Ashes, which was very controversial. They also won the World Test Championships, beating India in the final for that as well. So big ups to the Aussie cricket team. Yeah, a lot of people are saying that this is the single best one-day performance in Australian cricket history. So that's a big call. Yeah. <laughs> Travis Head's going to be just celebrated so much and deservedly so. It's it's fantastic turnaround. But uh, a lot of chaos and turmoil in your favourite sporting code over the weekend, Tom. Yeah, so um, rugby union just continues to spiral and, you know, maybe this will be a sp- a decision that actually helps them out of that spiral. Time will tell. That will take years. Uh, The chairman of Rugby Australia, Hamish McLennan, has been turfed. Um, He was voted out after a disastrous World Cup and a mess around the appointment of the coach, Eddie Jones, who's also been ousted recently. So six states, all of the states involved in rugby, except New South Wales and Victoria, joined this 
Rebel League to call for Hamish McLennan to go. And a former player now has been put into the job of chairman, Dan Herbert, which is interesting because the chief executive is also a former player now, Phil Law. So they're moving towards this plan of centralizing control of the elite player development. And these rebel states said, look, we support that plan, but we don't support Hamish McLennan to be the man to drive it. So there you go. What a mess. What yeah. a mess. Hopefully, though, a fresh page for, you know, some, I guess if there's former players now on, you know, in executive positions of leadership, maybe they're more sort of grounded in the grassroots of what the code stands for, do you think? Yeah, potentially. And then other people will say, oh, they're just part of the old boys club and it needs to change. And, you know, we had, um, you know, someone from a very different background, Raylene Castle, in the job. That didn't work. So time will tell. I, what we're I guess all looking forward to as rugby fans is actually hosting the World Cup here in Australia in 2027. So um, that's what we're all working towards. So yeah, hopefully we can turn things around between now and then. And Taylor Swift postponed a concert in Rio de Janeiro on Saturday after a fan died shortly before her show the night before. So it was super, super hot uh, in Rio de Janeiro. The temperature got up to about 40 degrees, but um, on the maximum heat index, which is a combination of both the air temperature and humidity, it, it kind of felt more like 59.3 degrees Celsius, which is just insane. Um, lots of footage of, you know, fans under umbrellas, hosing themselves down um, with with garden hoses. Um, yeah, whatever they could do to escape the heat. And according to the organisers, uh, this 23-year-old girl had tried to get help at the stadium after feeling sick. She was then transferred to hospital but died one hour later. Um, it was later reported that the cause of death was cardiorespiratory arrest. There's some footage that's also emerged of Taylor Swift uh, in that concert that night after doing a dance number, um, looking like she was ha really struggling to breathe herself. So she's um, released a statement saying, you know, how devastated she is. Um, she will play two more shows in Rio before she heads to Sao Paulo. Yeah, tough, tough situation um, for the fans, um, but also for Taylor Swift, that would be an awful thing to know that your fans have had to endure. Yeah, and just also all the millions of people living, you know, in pretty rough accommodation in, in some of the um, poorer parts of Rio de Janeiro. I've been uh, reading about those temperatures last week, seeing those crazy numbers, the feels-like temperature up in the high 50s. Um, so humid, so hot, and as this has proven, so dangerous. But there, there's probably lots of other deaths going on outside of um, concerts of people struggling to deal with the heat, especially older people and anyone with comorbidities. All right, that's it for the headlines. Coming up, a very interesting story about getting addicted to vaping and getting off. So how do you say no to vaping when it seems like all your friends are doing it? You say no once, twice, three times? Can you say it 10 times? Well, a new survey of 2,500 young people aged 14 to 25 confirms just how prevalent it is. 50% have done it. A third of those vaped in the last week. One in six vaping daily. This comes from research commissioned by the Mindaroo Foundation, which is Twiggy Forest Philanthropy Organisation. 
And they've pulled together a very interesting group of young people to share their personal stories along with the research. And they're pushing these stories out on social media to try and start a conversation amongst young people. Joy is one of the people telling her story to try and help other teenagers stay off the vapes in the first place. Joy, you were 17 when you started vaping. Tell us how it began. I first noticed my friends vaping and I was pretty anti-vape and I thought it was disgusting and gross. And after a few weeks or maybe a month of seeing them vape, I kind of like got interested in it as well. And um, so like they'd offer me at the start and I, you know, turned them down. Um, but then I got curious and I accepted it. Um, and we'd like vape literally anytime we'd hang out uh, in the car walking around. Yeah, anytime we're together, we'd vape. Uh, Yeah, that's how I started. How many of your friends were doing it? Was it just a few or was it quite a lot of your friends were vaping? I'd say it was the majority that were vaping. But then there was a few here and there that would be pretty, you know, like I'm not vaping at all. But yeah, majority would vape. Wow. It's pretty shocking that the majority would vape. Yeah, yeah. So it felt just completely normal amongst your circle of friends. That's exactly how it felt, yeah. You'd be the odd one out if you weren't vaping. You can only say no, like, that many times, Mm. and then you get pulled into it as well. After saying no so many times, I kind of just, you know, gave in. Yep, that's how peer pressure works. Maybe not straight away, but eventually. (laughs) um, We've all been there. We know it. Mm. What type of vapes were they? Did they have nicotine in them and... Where did they come from? Vapes, like our vapes, we were really eager to get vapes with nicotine so we could get like head spins or head highs, whatever people call them. But we really wanted the other vapes with nicotine. So they come from like friends of friends of friends sort of thing. And this is before we had like, like we could go to stores and just buy vapes. So it come from like knowing other people that, you know, know people that sell vapes. Right, so there was a bit of a trade going on. Were you at school still at this age or was this out of school? No, yeah, I was at school at this age, but the trade, like you said, would go on outside of school. Okay, so it got to the point where they were making you vomit. Tell us about that. Oh, <laughs> yes, they did. That was the first time I had my own vape. I got my vape, I was super excited, took it out of the, the packet and I raped a couple of times, and then I, I got, like, an overwhelming bout of nausea. And I thought, oh, it's nothing. I'll get over it. And I didn't, and I ended up throwing up the very first time I vaped. And my throw-up tasted like the like the vape flavor I'd been vaping. I can't remember what it was. But it was just really jarring because, <laughs> yeah, I didn't expect to vape, and no one had experienced that in my friend group and no one did if they had they didn't tell me about that so it was really shocking and I thought that you know those maybe I had something that just upset me at lunch or something and I didn't really you know link it to the vape like I should have I was just trying to find something else to blame hmm. but yeah the first time it was just really terrible and was that a one-off or were there lots of times where the vapes made you vomit yeah I wish it was a one-off <laughs> It was almost every single time I vaped. It went to the point that I had to start counting like how many pups I'd have. So I I knew when to stop vaping oh. and like give it a rest for a minute because 
I knew after that certain amount, I would like get nauseous. So like, let's say it's four and then I'll stop for a few minutes because I knew right after that fourth mark, I will get nauseous. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> but you still kept on vaping, even though you were throwing up frequently and getting nauseous almost every time? Yeah. <laughs> so stupid, I know. Um, but I was just really chasing that head high. And then it just came to a point where I was addicted to it, regardless of how it was making me feel. I couldn't put the vape down. Yeah, I was also in denial that I was addicted. So how did you stop and how hard was it? Because if vomiting wasn't enough to make it easy, then I'm guessing it, it was quite hard. Yeah, it was very hard to stop because, like I said before, a lot of people around me were vaping. My friends, my partner, the vapes were consistently around. So, yeah, that made it very hard to vape, uh, to quit vaping, sorry. I first started to think about quitting when I was just getting exhausted from throwing up and feeling sick and just having that general anxiety around vaping. You know, I thought about it, but I didn't say it out loud. And then I started to talk to some people around me like, you know, I want to try and quit vaping. And, you know, some other people have tried quitting and, you know, they told me their experiences. And I was like, oh, crap, okay, this is this is going to be a lot harder than I thought. So what I first started to do would was to put my vapes in my roommate's room so that like I have less access to it because it would be the first thing I do when I wake up, last thing I do when I go to sleep. So I was like, when it was right next to me or near me, it was just so much easier to con- like continue vaping. So getting it out of my side and my reach was like the first step for me. So like when I be really craving the vape, I would go over to my roommate's room, you know, knock on her door, wait for her, hey, can mm-hmm. I, you know, use my vape? And like, she goes to sleep earlier than me, so I, I, mm-hmm. I don't want to be like waking her up trying to get my vape. So that definitely discouraged me from vaping, but I still had those cravings. And then when I felt more comfortable not vaping constantly, um, I just stopped buying my own vape entirely. And I would just like beg people around me for their vapes mm. because I was trying to quit. And a lot of times they were very um, like understanding, but because you know you don't want to keep begging for vapes, I would just like try my hardest to ignore the urges. But if I couldn't, I you know beg my my friends for vapes. That was me like weaning myself off vaping. Okay, well, well done for finally getting there it doesn't sound easy not just because of the physical sensations but the what's going on around you with your friends that sounds like a a really challenging part of it so just finally joy you've lent your story to this campaign to try and change the minds of other young people there's obviously stuff going on at, at a government level with regulation from your experience what do you think it's going to take to actually deal with this problem of vaping what should we do? What's the answer, Joy? Oh, it's a really complex issue. So I can only really give you my perspective, which is to have all that, um, and which this campaign was really good at, was providing so much information for, you know, teens and young people to access because I'm the type of person that likes to do a little bit of research before I start doing something. And I did do that the first time I got my vape. I was, you know, trying to research the side effects and I couldn't see any information at that time. So I was like, oh, okay, it's good. I'm good to go. 
but yeah, I was obviously wrong. So I, I feel like having a lot of information out there for people to access so they can make like an informed decision is like, you know, that's in the right direction. And, but yeah, I'm not too sure about the reforms or what the government can do, but I reckon just, you know, getting the information out there, it's a great place to start. That was Joy explaining how hard it was to say no. Um, you can see her story and others like it on the Instagram account uncloud.vaping. That's the Instagram handle uncloud.vaping. Professor Claire Wakefield from New South Wales Uni is a medical psychologist who's directing Mindaroo's work on cancer and vaping. Claire, looking at what's being done on a government level to address teen vaping, is any of it working? Not enough has been done quite yet, but there's been fantastic announcements of things that are about to happen. So I think uh, it's probably premature to ask whether or not they've worked. Um, many of the reforms won't come into effect until the end of this year or early next year. But when they do come into effect, I'm really optimistic that they will make a difference, mainly because our data showed that most young people are accessing vapes from retail stores mm. and that they find them really easy to get from there. So if they can be removed from there, I think it will make a difference to reducing the supply and ease of access for young people. Well, there's a big if in there, if they can be removed. So as you're alluding to, the plan is to basically ban all vapes or e-cigarettes except for pharmaceutical products that are used specifically to quit smoking. So it's a big, bold, strong call, but do you think it'll actually even be able to be enforced? Look, I think it's going to be a challenge, but I think that it's better than doing nothing and it's a really good step in the right direction. The other thing is I think it makes sends a really good message to young people. So there's a lot of young people in our study and also um, reported in the Office for the Advocate of Children and Young People that young people think that if it's available over the counter freely in the same shop that sells their lollies, that it must be safe. And so if they see the message that the government's saying they're not safe enough to be sold, even just the messaging, I think, will make a big difference. And I think it will become harder to access them if it's easier for them to be enforced in terms of removal uh, if they're selling them blatantly. So you're part of this project by Mindaroo where I guess you're looking at brand new research on how prevalent it is and the, and the numbers are, are wild that half of young people have tried vaping even more of them, um, a third, have vaped in the last 30 days, 16% vaping daily, obviously very concerning. And we've just touched on, I guess, what governments can do, but there's also work to be done in just changing the culture amongst young people, which is part of what Joy was talking about, the, the peer pressure and what's seen as normal, how hard it is to say no repeatedly again and again when vapes are everywhere. What are your thoughts on the broader solutions here alongside regulation? Yeah, absolutely. I think you need to address supply, which the government is doing, but you also equally need to address demand. And so that's where the UnCloud campaign comes in, is we want to start a conversation with young people to empower them to say no to vaping. And I think that's just as important that young people themselves understand what vaping is, the potential negative impacts, and they're able to make a choice and that will reduce the demand for vapes. Uh, and what's unique about the UnCloud campaign is it's a sort of non-judgmental, safe space. It's young people talking to other young people. So it's a bit different and hopefully complementary to the health authority campaigns that are coming out as well. 
That was Professor Claire Wakefield, director of the Mindaroo Foundation's Collaborate Against Cancer. And it sounds like next year is going to be a very interesting year in the vaping story as the government bring in these new measures, essentially banning vapes except for pharmaceutical use to quit smoking. Are they actually going to be able to enforce that? Will it work? Will they be able to stop the wave of vapes being so easily accessible? It would be amazing if they can. Listener.